Once again, good morning. We're certainly glad that you're here. If you're visiting with us, uh, we are so glad you're here. Thank you for coming, being a part of us. Hope it's a great experience, enough that brings you back. We'd love to have you. I hope you got an outline. You came in. Uh, it's a simple outline, so it shouldn't be too hard to follow and fill in. I do hope it's a little more substantial than the outline suggests. We'll see. <clears throat> Paul Harvey tells uh, this story that happened back in 1995 in Mobile, Alabama. A young mother, along with her, her three-year-old son, pulls into the parking lot of a grocery store. Before she gets out of the car, she gives her little son these instructions. Look, Mommy is in a hurry. This is not a big shopping trip. We're here just to pick up a few things. So don't start asking me about cookies. So she takes them inside, puts them in that little cart seat, starts making her way up and down the aisles to get what Mommy needs. Well, they come down the aisle, finally, where his heart desires, that is, the aisle where all the cookies are, and the little boy just couldn't help himself. And so he says, Mommy, can I get a box of chocolate chip cookies? Mother says, don't you start, we don't have time for that. But as she continues her journey through the aisles, the boy keeps pleading, Mommy, let's go back so I can get some chocolate chip cookies. His mother says, now don't make Mommy stop this cart and have to spank you. I told you we don't have time for that. So finally they get to the checkout line, and this little boy obviously had enough presence of mind to realize, hey, this might be my last chance. And so he stands up in the grocery cart and says, and as loud as he can, in the name of Jesus, can we get some chocolate chip cookies? <laughs> well, evidently, the people who heard that little fellow were either amused or convicted. <laughs> because Paul Harvey tells us that that young mother went to her car with 23 bags of chocolate chip cookies. And the moral of the story, people who often get little attention on earth get a lot of attention in heaven when they pray. Because prayer is not reserved for the elite, but for all the elect. The last time we encountered these words, the prayer of a righteous person are powerful and effective. Let me talk about righteous real quick because we tend to, you know, think, well, it means you're kind of born and born on Krypton, but, you know, kind of live here on earth and have some kind of super spiritual uh, uh, status in life. No, that's not what the word means. It doesn't mean without struggle. It doesn't mean with, that we always have our act together. What it does mean is that we are spiritually attuned to God, that we're in touch with the heart of God, that we're sensitive to God's leading, that that matters to us. The irony is that we turn this very word into the very opposite of where God's trying to lead us. So, thus, I say that. Now, you may have noticed that if you've been through this series on James, that James has already introduced us and used certain Old Testament figures to uh, emphasize his major theme. We've been introduced to Abraham and Rahab and Job, and now he introduces us to what appears to be another superhero, this one the major prophet Elijah. 
who James appeals to as an example of prayer and trust, even in difficult circumstances. But the amazing thing is this, that James tells us here that you and I can pray as powerfully and as effectively as Elijah did. And it's here where we pick up in verse 17, uh, verse five, chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, and listen. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. Now, I don't know how you react to the fact that James says that Elijah is just like you and me. But when it comes to prayer and what prayer can do, the Bible says you have the same right, the same access, and the same potential in prayer that the great prophet had. So I want you to follow along as we think together about Elijah's prayer life. Now, the first thing you must understand is that Elijah understood a very critical principle that we struggle understanding. Elijah understood that God wants to be asked to accomplish his will. Now, let me kind of flesh that out. There's more here than meets the eye. It really does seem amazing that he would say that, but our God actually invites us to collaborate with him as he interacts with this world in which we live in. As one person put it, history is the story of God giving away his power. Think about that. And so, on your outline, there at the top, our sovereign God often makes the choice to accomplish his will only when asked to do so. I'm just letting that soak in a little bit. Now, this is something you see the prophets all understood. Let me give you just one example. Let's start with the prophet Jeremiah. His job, you see, was to prepare the Israelites for Babylonian captivity that God had ordained because they had turned away from him and started trying to find life in other gods. And God wanted them back. But in the face of the harsh discipline, God also wanted to give them hope. And so God speaks through Jeremiah, and he offers them these wonderful words of promise. Notice Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and I will fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and and you will pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And so God says, I've got big plans for you, and I will fulfill these plans when you ask. Now, fast forward about 80 years, and we come to the prophet Daniel. 
And we're in Daniel chapter 9, and we read this point of connection. Notice. In the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler of the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, obviously, he's talking about the very scripture that we just read from from Jeremiah. And Daniel says, I looked at my Bible, and I saw that God's plan for the captivity was only supposed to last 70 years. Time's up! And so what does Daniel do? He didn't say, well, now that I know what God's will is, I'll just sit here and wait and see it happen. No. Notice the very next verse. So... I turned to the Lord and I pleaded with him in prayer and petition and sackcloth and ashes. You see, the prophets understood something. That whenever we come across a promise of God, that's not to make us restrained in our prayer. It is to incite us to pray. God is inviting us to be a part of what he himself is actually willing to do, by the way, in this place. Question. But first, a verse. The prophets would often pray, God, do what you say you are longing to do. So think about this. Isn't that exactly what Jesus taught? Matthew 6. This is how you should pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth, as it is in heaven. Now the question. If God's will was not dependent on prayer, then why did he ask us to pray that way? God wants to be asked to accomplish his will. You see, the aim of prayer is not to get past this reluctance of God, but rather to actually partnership with him, to set in motion, to align ourselves with God's purposes. But you understand here, unless you have a vision for the kingdom of God, we lose this sense of real-time interaction with God. What does God really want to take place here? Until you're passionate about that, there's no reason to pray, I guess. You see, it was this very conviction that drove Elijah to what was perhaps the most dramatic event of his life. Most of you in this room are aware of the events that took place, as we say, on Mount Carmel. As he faced off with about 850 false prophets, some belonged to Baal, some belonged to Asherah. Now, I want you to think of the octagon that Elijah set up. In essence, what Elijah suggested was a prayer off. In other words, let's see whose God answers prayer. We'll set up uh, respective altars. We'll call down fire from heaven. You call to your God, and I'll call to mine. And let's see which God is the prayer-answering God. Think about it. In all of our attempts at Christian apologetics before the world, have we ever tried that?
Have we ever tried that? Have we ever said to people of other religions, I'll tell you what, let's have a prayer contest. You pray to your God and we'll pray to ours. And let's just see what happens. Well, in essence, that's what Elijah did. Now, it's interesting that when we go back to the Old Testament, James says that Elijah prayed that it would not rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. Then he prayed that it would rain, and it did rain. But when you go back and read the actual event in 1 Kings 17 and 18, it doesn't really specifically mention that Elijah prayed for the rain to stop, only that he announced Ahab that it was going to stop raining. But you see, then there, of course, came the moment when he was sent off, you know, to the ravine of Kareth where the ravens fed him, and you know about that, perhaps that part of the story. But you see, James here fills us in and tells us that it was Elijah's prayers that played a part in accomplishing the announced will of God. So let's do as James suggests, and let's look closely at 1 Kings chapter 18 where we get some clues into Elijah's prayer life. Now, remember that the events of Mount Carmel have already taken place. All of those false prophets, all 850 of them from the two different gods, have been humiliated. Every one of them has been executed. And a national revival is beginning to break out amongst the Jews. And Elijah wants to, well, water the revival. Now, pick up in verse 41 of chapter 18. And Elijah said to Ahab, Real evil king, all right? Go eat and drink, for there is a sound of heavy rain um, between the lines with your tail between your legs. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel. He bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. Go back, go back, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, well, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising up from the sea. And so Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot, go down before uh, the rain stops you, reading between the lines, with your tail between your legs. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, the heavy rains came, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. It's been dry for three and a half years. Now, the Bible says that you and I can pray like this. So what does just like us prayer involve? Well, let's learn a few things from Elijah's prayer life. And understand, there is not a single thing that we're going to learn here that you and I can't do, and by the way, ought to be doing. First, Elijah prayed intentionally. Maybe, I don't know, that's one of the reasons that God sent uh, Elijah to that ravine there in Kareth, that remote kind of retreat, because it was such... In such an undistracted environment, he could devote himself to prayer. As I shared with you last time, prayer allows us to slow down so that our souls can grow up a little bit. Don't pray, then I guess we just stay immature. 
Think about it. How often does God get your undivided attention? I mean, our culture is never going to stop and offer us a time or a place to pray, is it? So, when it comes to prayer, just do it. We don't get to claim God's promises by studying prayer or promoting prayer or affirming prayer. We get to claim the promises of God by praying. Just do it. Elijah didn't pray because there wasn't anything else he could do. He prayed because there wasn't anything better than he could do. Earth keeps waiting on heaven to move, and heaven keeps waiting on earth to ask. But if there's no vision of the kingdom of God, then there's nothing to ask for, I guess. So don't wait for your life to clear its schedule for you, for me. Just do it. Second, Elijah prayed submissively. The obvious is, notice, even after the, uh, the great and courageous moments of Mount Carmel, did Elijah approach God in any way that was kind of arrogant or as though somehow he was some sort of elitist? Uh, as one person put it, you know, he stood tall in the presence of sin, but he, but he bowed low in the presence of of God. God will not use pride to accomplish his will because, you see, the, 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 the question of who gets the glory becomes really confused in those cases. Remember what James has already told us, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Think about it. Most of the time, when the Bible talks about prayer posture, it refers to kneeling, laying prostrate down on the ground, or standing with hands raised in a posture of surrender. Ironically, the only position I don't find in the Bible is sitting. Now, I am not suggesting that you can't sit and pray. I am saying that there's a reason that when the Bible refers to prayer posture, their purpose was to show us that they were humbling themselves. And that we can't ignore. Prayer, uh, it invites us to drop our defenses. Does that help? Understand that humility is not groveling on the ground. It is not a negative self-image. It is just this kind of constant choice to give God the credit. Elijah understood that this moment wasn't about vindicating himself. It was about the vindication of God. You see, Elijah knew what God's will on this matter was when he prayed. He knew that way back in Deuteronomy chapter 11, when Moses was about to allow the children of Israel to have passageway into the promised land, he said to them this. He said, if you will honor God, notice, God says, I will sustain you by sending the rain. But if you turn to other gods... I'll stop the rain. He knew this. He didn't make it up. Now, Elijah knew God's intent. So all he is doing, all he is saying is, God, 
Glorify yourself. Fulfill your promise. Show how faithful to your promises you really are. You see, it's not about pleading our righteousness. It's about pleading God's faithfulness. And that's what keeps us oriented, you see. Three. Elijah prayed specifically. James tells us that Elijah had a very clear agenda. Number one, stop the rain. Number two, send the rain. So it seems to me that Elijah actually could tell if God answered the prayer or not. Perhaps one of the reasons we don't see more prayers answered is because we've not ever told God exactly what we want. Think about it. And be honest. If all that was general, if all that was traditional, if all that was cliche-ridden was removed from your prayers, what would be left? Do you remember what Jesus said to the blind man Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10? Jesus stood before him and he asked him a question. He said, what do you want me to do for you? Sometimes when I pray, I actually try to envision Jesus standing in front of me and asking me that question. Jim, so what do you want me to do for you? I think you'll find that if you do this, you'll be a lot more specific in what you pray for. Try it. Think about it. It took the blood of Jesus to gain access for us into the very presence of God. So it just, it just doesn't make sense to squander that, that privilege mindlessly throwing off cliches and things that we don't even understand and never get to the point. But if you don't have a vision of what the kingdom of God is, what does God want to take place in this place? Then I guess there's nothing left to pray for. It's fueled by that. Fourth, Elijah prayed persistently. I think about Elijah praying for the rain as he sent out that servant as kind of a mobile Doppler radar, and that servant came back reporting, well, nothing but blue skies. Of course, they've been seeing that for three and a half years, so it was pretty predictable, pretty predictable. And so he sent the servant back again and again and again, Let me say this. I know that it is tempting to quit when it seems like God is not delivering. By the way, if you've ever really wanted something and you pray to God for it, you'll understand this. You know, what kind of God who has the power to save a life or heal a disease 
would sit on the sidelines despite repeated, urgent pleas for help. The world is asking that question, and I think we ought to as well. In a sense, every war, every epidemic, every drought, every premature death stands as an accusation against the teasing promise of prayer. Doesn't it? Unless all we do is pray generalized things, and it doesn't matter whether we get what we ask for or not. Think about it. What if you and I were Bruce Almighty? In other words, what would happen if God answered every prayer just as we thought best? Wouldn't God, in effect, be abdicating and turning the world over to us to run? You know, when you put aside and sweep aside all the frivolous things, okay, and even the contradictory things, you know, a big war going on, both sides are praying to God for the win, you put all that aside. What if God gave all of us the automatic access to his supernatural powers? It's kind of like having a genie in a bottle. Can't we see the havoc that we would wreak? As Oscar Wilde puts it, when the gods want to punish us, he answers our prayers. But having said that, I don't believe that there is such thing as unanswered prayer so much as there is such thing as discarded prayer. You see, while looking on God as my problem solver, I tend to do what? I tend to overlook all the the wonderful ways God is actively evidenced around me. Kind of like picking weeds in a flower bed and never noticing the flowers. You ever do that? Well, I have found, haven't you, that there is a cure for impatient prayer. And by the way, even prayer that emerges out of a great disappointment in God. Read the Lament Psalms and you'll understand that. And that is, keep praying. As I look at Jesus' various teachings on prayer, it strikes me that the principle that he most often emphasized about prayer was this very thing, perseverance. Luke 18, we should always pray and not give up. But no vision of the kingdom, no motivation to pray. Finally, number five, Elijah prayed expectantly. He he wasn't just wishing for an answer, he was watching for an answer. Of course, if there's no sense of watching, unless there's something to watch for. Are you catching the thread that goes through? I think it's kind of funny when a servant kept coming back with nothing to report, or at least nothing new. And finally, after the seventh round trip, the servant reports, well, it's not much, but there's this little puff cloud hanging out there. Elijah's response, 
then you go tell Ahab to put some rain tires on those chariots and get on with it, because it's coming. You see, Elijah knew that the rain of God would prevail. He knew it. And just like him, we should pray and expect that God's will, his kingdom, will be done here in our midst. When it comes to prayer, Elijah was just like us. And so when it comes to prayer and praying, we should be just like him. Why? How do you put this? Because people and our appeals affect God. We think it doesn't. For reasons I believe only God can fully explain, God has made the work of the kingdom dependent on the notoriously unreliable human species. Ask him. But as the French thinker, philosopher, sociologist Jacques says, prayer holds together the shattered fragments of creation. It makes history possible. Exaggeration? Not if James is telling the truth. Well, let me end with this. In Revelation chapter 8, the Apostle John sees and foresees this interaction between the invisible world of heaven and the visible world of earth. And at a climatic moment in history, it says that heaven is quiet. And there are these seven angels poised, holding seven trumpets, ready to go at it. But silence reigns as if all of heaven is kind of on tiptoes. And then it tells us this, that there is another angel, it says, who is collecting all the prayers of the people on earth. Translated, all the accumulated prayers of outrage, of praise, of lament, of despair, of all the requests. And he mixes them with incense and he sends them up to the throne of God. And then it says, the silence finally breaks. And it says, and there came peals of thunder and rumbling and flashes of lightning and earthquake. You get it? The answers. They show up. The point, as one scholar put it, is this. The message is clear. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. Exaggeration? Not if John is telling the truth.
the kingdom of God shall reign. But we have to want it. And we have to ask for it. We usually set aside a few moments at this time, offer an invitation. Of course, the nature of the sermon, uh, why don't we just all receive the invitation this morning? I mean, you have to come forward. But if it helps for you to do so, and we can help in some public way, please feel free to come forward and, and, and we'll acknowledge that and, 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 and love you and, and pray about it. We say this time and time just as a reminder. Um, you'll notice when we sing our closing song, our, our shepherds go back to the foyer. Um, they're not skipping out on us. What they're doing is going back there and awaiting you. You know, if you have some, some things you would just like to talk to a person alone about, you can tap one of them on the shoulders and say, can I talk with you and can we pray together? I mean, they're glad to meet everybody, but that's why they do that. That's why that started. I always wondered if anyone's ever taken them up on it. But if you need that this morning, ask. Ask. If we can serve you in any way this morning, please do so while we stand in the same.